Yo, yo, this is Oz, host and founder of Salinas in the Ground podcast. And this is Claudia Melendez Salinas, co-founder of Voices of Monterey Bay. So Salinas in the Ground podcast, we've been around for six years, and I swore since the beginning that we would never do anything political. But this year, this election season is a little bit different. And I thought to myself, now is the time that we have to do something. So like, I called around to see who I can get to, to help back me up on this. And Claudia luckily answered my call. Voices of Monterey Bay has been around for nearly three years. And we were created with the idea of amplifying important voices around the community. So then Osvaldo asked, hey, you want to come along so we can do some political reporting? And I thought, why not? So this is an experiment. And... Uh, so the next following weeks, we'll be interviewing as many candidates for Salinas City office as possible. The elections are coming up quickly on November 3rd, so we have to we have to hurry it up. Oz and I work full time, so we will only have time to interview one or two candidates a week, which means we won't have time to cover school boards or other races. But we're committed to getting to all the candidates for Salinas City Council, and maybe we'll try to squeeze in a... Uh, uh, ballot proposition or two? What say you, Oz? Hey, we'll we'll try our best. We ju- we just got the we just got the voter guide, so we'll see we'll see what we can fit before the before the third. And now, without further ado, this week's candidate. All right. Well, this week sitting in front of us is Carla Viviana Gonzalez, who is running for District One. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Carla. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to to be here with you all and, and to be back in the studios after being on um, the wonderful show, 831 Comadres. Yeah, you did a great job on there. And uh, yeah, so this is this is really cool to get you in a this is a little more pressure filled <laughs> interview than that one. But I think this is a great opportunity, like we were just talking before we hit record for people to get really get to know you and, you know, really hear what you think and why. You're doing this. So, um, yeah, so let's get right into it and start there. Let's start. Why did you decide to why run? Why did I do it? Yeah. Well, that's always why, especially now. Why? Yeah. Um, well, first, if I can work a, a bit of an introduction for those of your listeners who are not um, familiar with me, I am Carla Viviana Gonzalez. I am a homegrown educator, lifelong resident of East Salinas, daughter of immigrants, proud member of the LGBTQIA plus community, and a teacher at Alisa High School, where I teach U.S. history, ethnic studies, and Mexican-American studies. Uh, in addition to my role as an educator, I am a community organizer, and I co-founded the Salinas Valley Ethnic Studies Collective and the Monterey County uh, Black and Brown Solidarity Coalition. So just a, a little bit about uh, me. I'm running for the District 1 City Council seat. District 1 is in East Salinas and runs from the Acosta Plaza neighborhoods over to the Bronda communities and from Williams Road to along the border of uh, Constitution Boulevard. That's a huge chunk. That's a big, <laughs> that's a big bit. And uh, I'm running for a wide variety of reasons, but I think that really I see this candidacy as an extension of my lifelong work, which has really been to build and uplift our community. Uh, As a student here attending our public schools, I received really powerful mentorship and great tutelage. And it was teachers and advocates and leaders who taught me, you know, what it was to 
love our community and advocate for our community and take action in our community. And so you did your schooling here in Salinas. Yes. Yes. So I went to John Steinbeck Elementary, La Paz Middle School and Alice Hall High School. Are those all three in your district? Or, no, except or for John Steinbeck. Oh, wow. Yeah, except for John Steinbeck. Um, and so it, I found uh, in my life that the vehicle for that community work for me was education. And I really wanted to be an advocate for the youth and reciprocate the, the great love and mentorship that I had been given. So this feels like a natural extension of what I've already done. And we are in a moment in our culture where people are asking more of their representatives. People are really becoming awakened to the value that they hold uh, as voters, as residents, and I want to honor that value. You know, it's it's funny when I first announced that I was um, going to be running. When I first announced my campaign, it was associates of my opponents who said, "Oh, well, you know, that's great, and but why don't you work on this commission first and get a little bit more familiarized with the political scene first and while I appreciate their concern, I took that as an immediate dismissal of the campaign. And to me, the the measure of a thriving democracy is precisely when you have community members who may not be of the political scene, but care enough about their community to say, you know what, I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to work on this and I'm going to really um, put the effort to earn the trust of uh, our residents. I think that too many public officials believe, well, I, I hold the title and therefore I represent the community. That's not true. Your job as an elected official at its core is being a public servant, serving the public. So I think it's much more than getting elected. It's spending the entirety of your term really earning the continued support of your residents. And, you know, the work that I've done as an educator uh, has given me the great opportunity to work with the youth and the future of this city. And so they keep me grounded in our sustainability, in our progress as a community. And you talk to a teenager and kind of drag it out of them, eventually they won't stop talking about the changes that they want to see. And so I've been really privileged to have an ear to that. And as a community organizer, I've had great experience in getting people together around central issues of all walks of life, around common goals and serving as bridge builder, mediator, consensus builder. And so I believe those experiences really uh, lead me to serve in this moment. Well, yeah, let me ask you this. And I'm sorry, Claudia, for for jumping here. I know we, we like to go back and forth, but you, you kind of a little kind of uh, jumping around one of our questions here that and then I would want to just ask you, well, mm -hmm. uh, what makes you qualified? You know, because you're you see, you're saying, you know, again, you, you mm -hmm. seem to be doing some things that have made you qualified. Right. But what do you believe that you have done in the past or what has what shows that you are qualified mm -hmm. to be in the in this position? I think um in addition to being an educator, the grassroots orgs that I founded uh, have really served as a staple in our community. So the Salinas Valley Ethnic Studies Collective um, has organized conferences and uh, committees and curriculum fairs where we've really brought cultural uh, relevancy to our curriculum. I advocated largely within our district to make our ethnic studies class a requirement 
Uh, and with the Monterey County Black and Brown Solidarity Coalition, we, uh, hopefully you've heard of the march that we organized, the 14-mile march. We marched from East Lena's to Seaside to put on something of that scale in a few weeks' time um, with really no formal uh, support uh, from city leaders, we we had to, you know, we had meetings with all of police leadership, with city leadership, with seaside leadership. We really had to leverage our roles as community members and hold our city leaders accountable. And so I believe that more than anything, in addition to those experience, it's the attitudes. It's that I commit myself to being a scholar and to being a learner and to serving the public. Since I've announced uh, my candidacy, all my weekends and afternoons have been dedicated to research. I went 10 years back in our city's uh, operational budget reports. And what I did is I correlated our city council goals to crime rates and to median income for our District 1 constituents. And what I found time and time again is that the city fails to address what the community is asking for. And so I'm here to be that middleman, to listen to our residents. Our uh, our campaign slogan is rooted in community, uplifting resident voices. And I believe that's the power and that's where my qualification resides in, is that I am reflective of the community. I've done the work my entire life. And more than anything, I'm committed to continuing that work. I don't take this for granted. I, this is a, I think this is a great segue into the next question that we have for you. And we didn't offer you water. Are you going to be okay with it? Oh, I'm set. Thank you. Okay, so, um, it's called the hot seat for a reason. It's the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> no Marco uh, Rubio action here. No, no water. <laughs> Um, you talk a lot about being rooted and, and, and having a lot of community input. So in your research, what have you seen that are the most pressing issues that are f uh, facing District 1 and how can they be addressed? How much time do you have? <laughs> 10 seconds or less. Yeah. 10 seconds or less, yeah. The forum is solve housing in a minute. I'm like, oh my God. Um, I think that there are uh, five, five big issues. And so for me, and perhaps this is my own bias as an educator, one of the most important is education uh, and, you know, the digital divide. One of the things that I found the most striking about all of this coverage of these two young girls that were outside of Taco Bell uh, was nobody commented on their resilience. No one, not one publication that I saw talked about how what these young women did is they took their education into their own hands and came up with a creative solution. And the burden should not fall on them to do this. So uh, when it comes to education, I want to spearhead a collaborative between the leaders of our local public school systems and our districts uh, and the governing bodies of the city of Salinas to really get behind a digital justice initiative. And there are models for this. Uh, in Detroit, the Digital Justice Coalition, uh, they created their own sort of uh, Wi-Fi networks in effort to provide high-speed internet to their students. So there are models uh, for us to, to follow. And again, as someone who has this firsthand experience, I cannot tell you uh, how much our students are suffering and how much we are asking of them in this moment. Um, secondly, I believe that's housing. You know, here in Salinas, 
It's been a multitude of things that have created a housing crisis, low wages, overcrowding, uh, and that leads to, of course, increased homelessness. Uh, and we have the potential with this new growth area to really reorient our housing uh bylaws and our housing policies. You know, this is potentially 10,000 homes uh, along the, uh, from San Juan grade to Williams, and then what will be voted on soon from Williams to Natividad. Uh, there are experts in our community that have dedicated themselves throughout their entire careers to becoming uh, housing advocates. Uh, two groups that come to mind, Viviendas para Todos and the Community Center for, or the Center for Community Advocacy. Uh, they talk about often how they're not consulted at all when it comes to meetings with developers and city leadership. And there needs to be a set of common goals in supporting our, our housing owner, our housing homeowners, but also our renters and really prioritizing our small lenders, our renters, making sure that in these new developments, community benefit agreements are honored, that there is inclusionary housing policies, and that there are rent stabilization plans. You know, the, the makeup of our homes have changed, and the, the rising rates of homelessness are just unacceptable. And so I believe, first and foremost, if we center our most marginalized when it comes to the housing crisis, and if we really, really, really uh, do our due diligence in creating safety measures that protect them, that we can make housing uh, much more equitable. Crime crime is, a, is another one. I'm sure that as residents of Salinas, you know that we have a history with crime. Uh, I know first and foremost what it is to be affected by gun violence and by gang violence. Uh, I was a sophomore at Alsa High School when a student was shot and killed on our campus, and I will never forget that day. It, it has marked me uh, quite deeply. And as a teacher, I know what it is to have a student shot and killed. So this affects home in, in the most intimate of ways. And in conversations that I have with the youth in particular on this issue as is they are the most susceptible to this. We talk about new uh, paradigm shifts when it comes to crime prevention. And so our policy suggestion is really community-centered crime prevention, which I think boils down to a reorientation from you know, the very antiquated crime and punishment, uh, law and order to rehabilitation, restoration, uh, you know, to preventing recidivism into our jails and into our prisons. And so I believe that there is the potential uh, to really hold our uh, police departments accountable and to work in partnership with them and with community organizations like uh, Islinas BHC, like Milpa, to create a justice system that is transformative and that more than punishing crime or, uh, you know, having these punitive measures really centers peace and really centers prosperity uh, and community infrastructure. I think also is a large, large issue. That was one of the more common threads that I found uh, 
every year when the uh, city has to put out their operational budget report, the city council uh, delineates a set of goals. And they say, well, the people want this, and that's why we've created these set of goals to uh, accomplish that. And that's sort of the rationalization for their budget. The most common uh, thread was members of the community saying that their roads were outdated, that there were potholes, signs, public facilities that were just not upkept. District 1 houses the largest park in Salinas. And I've lived my entire beautiful park, beautiful, yeah. park, beautiful park, but neglected park, right? Yeah. And and our community is a community neglected by its systems, not by its people. There are efforts uh, like the guerrilla gardeners, like the cleanup days to do what really city leadership should be taking the initiative on. And so I believe that our residents deserve to live in a community that is reflective of them and our community members need an infusion of monies and funds into their upkeep of the community. To go back a little bit on, on something you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about uh-huh. kind of uh, holding the, the police accountable to the community. Yes. I see there is a police community advisory committee. If you look it up and they seem to meet and um, do you think that com- that committee is is doing enough to represent the community? No, no. I think that city uh, citizen overwatch communities. I, I forget the exact name for this one. Um, I think it's, it's from it's what I'm saying from the city oversight police committee community Ad- advisory committee. Got it. Yeah. Advisory. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't think they're doing enough to hold our our city uh, police department accountable. You know, you say something like uh, defund the police, and people assume that it's a very um, antagonistic, that it's um, anti-cop, that it is uh, anti-community. I view it more as refund the community, put money into community services and social programs that we know drop crime rates. As soon as we had the uh, really rise of community organizations here in this area and these programs that worked with formerly incarcerated youth and so forth, we saw a huge drop in crime rates. And I don't understand how, as this as these drops in crime rates happen and as, uh, you know, the bulk of our, our um, crime is not gun violence. It's not homicides. It's theft. It's petty theft. That tells me this is not a violent community. This is a community in need. And so if we need to, if we uh, really want to hold our police department accountable, it's a matter of of saying, you know, be transparent with us. Be be real with us. What are you spending all your money on? Do you really need this money for military grade, uh, you know, specialized equipment? I don't think so. So um, to answer your question, no, I don't think that we're doing enough to hold our uh, police department accountable. And I think that now, especially as a new police chief um, is is coming into play or, or will come into play, I think that presents an opportunity for us to vet our leaders and to really assure that they are, if not of the community, dedicated to serving the community. You know, um, 
it's interesting that we touching on to this on this issue because uh, recently Voices of Monterey Bay um, decided that we wanted to embrace a little bit what's called community so solutions journalism, mm -hmm. and one of the solutions that it's being proposed by in the entire team is we researched an organization called Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, that is using some funding that would have gone to the police department, but is used to fund a response uh, team that it only takes um, response to uh, distress calls. And this is called for like homeless people or, or maybe uh, drunk people on the street, mental, mental issue. health mm -hmm. issues, Issues that do not pose a threat to the um, to, to the responders, right? Mm -hmm. Because we also we want everybody right. to be safe, correct? Definitely. And so, um, so, so, you, uh, Cahoots has been working in Eugene for a number of years, and um, we we did some research. There's a proposal that Voices put together in conjunction with some community organizations that says if we have this much money, we can fund a program called REACT in Monterey County. I like that. That would, uh, would you, would that be something, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I, is that I'm not familiar of? with that, but I'm, I'm going to look into that. And that's something that I would definitely support. You know, um, my father has been a social worker for almost 30 years for Monterey County. And so uh, we often talk about uh, the ways in which the police have too much on their hands and the ways in which there is no way that with the short amount of time in the police academy, you can effectively be trained in how to do everything from deliver a baby to stopping a bank robbery to helping someone in mental distress. It's just too much for any one position. And uh, we talk about Solutions such as what you just mentioned, Claudia, which is alternative response teams. Um, I know that in Denver, they recently started rerouting uh, calls to these kinds of services, and it's shown amazing success. Um, and so, yeah, I would be fully mm -hmm. in support of something like that. I think the Denver model is based on the Cahoots model. Oh, okay. And Cahoots is pretty much serving right now as the beacon of, uh, for everybody because yeah. they've been in, around for a, long, for a very long time. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that'd be great. That'd be great. I want to switch it up a little bit and to, to ask something that I really, I'm really curious to see everybody's response to, to this one. Um, but... We've talked, again, housing and like you were saying, theft is a very common crime here. So it, it shows that there's a community in need. Um, so but also at the same time, every year the county comes out with a report about its ag business and says, hey, guess what? It's, it's usually now it went up. Right. Salinas is the center of a over nine billion dollar industry just one industry pulling mm -hmm. in that much money yet we mm -hmm. have all these issues how or why do are we the center of this of this but still struggle financially yeah no that's a great question and i think ultimately that comes to our our custom of profit over people you know i think one of the biggest solutions to uh, economic disparity, particularly as, particularly as it affects our ag workers, is ag tech. Uh, and I think that ag tech has the potential 
to really reinvigorate our economy. Now, I want to be clear here. You know, I lived in San Francisco at the peak of uh, the gentrification process. So I saw firsthand the transformation of the Mission District of areas in Oakland. Um, and I worked with organizers there to really curb those kinds of trends. So uh, if there is to be a partnership, it needs to be done equitably. I, training programs, in-house training programs and incentivized uh, vocational programs for the workers that are already in the ag industry that already have the experience of doing these kinds of things. Because, you know, there is no stopping technology. There is no stopping the modernization of our ag practices, harvesting practices. But if you empower the people that already do this work to then be trained in tech, uh, you know, our students that are that are going off and studying ag business, what kind of recruitment practices can we do to bring them back in the community and make them leaders? I believe that's one of the biggest uh, ways that we can really reorient that industry to serve its people because it's not okay that, as you said, we have $9 billion and none of that seems to be going to our workers. Let's talk about another sector of the community that seems to be neglected, especially these days with uh, when Salinas downtown is all been up and um, as nationwide, 100,000 businesses have seemed to have closed down. So what are your ideas for the city to support small businesses with the budget problems that we already have? That's a great question. And we're going to be, as far as I think the most recent uh, projections show, $19 million in deficit. That's a huge gap to close. Uh, you know, I, I think an empowered business owner is a community leader. I really believe that someone who possesses that entrepreneurial spirit with the support of city government has the potential to uh, be of great influence. Uh, the fact that we have growing fees so that our businesses adapt to COVID instead of loans or grants is ridiculous. The fact that large retailers here in Salinas believe that simply by being allowed to be in our community, that those profits will be put back in. Uh, you know, that's, that's something that makes no sense to me. We're asking uh, small business owners to pay taxes that large corporations that make triple, quadruple, even, you know, more than that to not pay. So I believe having large retailers pay their due, empowering our business leaders with loans, with grants, and really looking at our permitting center, which right now stalls, not supports uh, our, our, our business leaders who are looking to make improvements or additions. We need to look at how we streamline these processes. And, you know, it, it, Everybody knows a business owner. Everybody knows someone that has uh, a place that that they that they own. You know, my aunt, uh, she has uh, a beauty salon, and I've really seen how she's had to struggle and make creative solutions to this. And so, in addition to legislatively uh, and policy wise addressing this, it's a matter of shifting community consumer culture and saying, you know, these business owners, these are your cousins, these are your neighbors, these are members of our community. And to support them, do your part, go into Viva Espresso, go into Bearded Bean to get your coffee. Uh, it's really a matter of reorienting towards uh, 
you know, community pride and uplifting our community and saying, you know, put your dollars to use. Help out someone that you know is struggling and and really, uh, really supporting our business owners. I, your district is, or the poten- your potential district, let's, let's I'm giving crowning yeah, my you district, already. No. Yeah. The, district where, <laughs> the district where you live. Yeah, oh, yeah, you live. yeah, you live there. So yeah, yeah. It, is, it is your district. So what, what's neat about it is... Um, because we were touching on a little bit, you know, uh-huh. gentrification and, and things like that and, sure. and ag tech coming in. Your district is just looking at the map is neat in that half of it is empty, which seems weird. It's like, how is that neat? Yeah. But it's it's cool in that there's that potential that, look, we might need to import a, a new type of workforce. Mm hmm. But also, we don't have to necessarily uproot the people that make this city what it is because we have this big chunk of land there. Yes. So, and and this is more of, of a hypothetical. This is more of a fun thing. So let's say you were handed a magic wand, you know, and, and um, what would you do with that chunk of land? What would it look like? And for the re, the our listeners who may not be familiar, this is the West Area Plan. The mm-hmm. city is planning on developing this huge plot of land uh, between Williams and all the San way Juan to Green. Old State. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean it's yeah. acres and acres, it's acres and acres of land. So yeah, that that's a great question. A magical wand. Um, I think housing, housing, that's not a snazzy response, but housing is. Uh, again, well, like what type of house? Let's just, again, what would it Renter focused like? housing. Renter focused so housing. Are we talking single family houses, Multiple. apartments? Multiple. So we're talking, yeah, we're talking apartments. We're, I mean, you know, the single family home is, is just not the norm anymore. I live with my parents. <laughs> and that was a decision that I made. I said, I pay my student loans or I move out. I went with paying my student loans. That's not an uncommon story here. So focusing on our renters, focusing on multifamily homes, on apartment complexes, I think also in that land, ag tech and tech training services. You know, District 1 houses six schools. The majority of our district is looking younger and younger and younger. If we find ways to really incentivize uh those folks to stay here, whether it be through housing, whether it be through increased job opportunities, whether it be through uh, ag tech training services, they will stay. You know, I think about my inner circle of of friends and, um, you know, I graduated from Alisal High School in 2011. And uh, if I look at that circle of friends, I'm one of two that stayed in Salinas. You know, the rest, they went to UCLA, they went to uh, Santa Barbara, and always the response was, I love Salinas, but there's no future there for me. I love Salinas, but I can't get a job in marketing there. I love Salinas, but I can't get a job in tech there. And living this close to the Silicon Valley, we are presented with the opportunity to either work in partnership with tech or be displaced by tech. And so I believe that we need to empower our residents to work in partnership and in using that land, create housing that focuses on the young, on the renters, on multifamily homes and apartment complexes, and in job training services, retaining our youth, retaining the people who will 
in, you know, X amount of years that they are trained contribute to the economy of our local community. So if I'm a business owner downtown, because you were saying, oh, let's do ag tech over there. Mm -hmm. What if all, all of a sudden there's a big cluster of businesses in ag tech? And that's what hurt downtown. And looking mm -hmm. at Salinas's history is when mm -hmm. Northridge Mall was built. That That's right. really what destroyed this mom and pop type thing. How do you reassure them and, and say, yeah, OK, we want to we you know, we want to build this cluster of, of businesses here, but we're not going to forget, you know, the mom and pop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think you give them a seat at the table. I think you say. You as a small business owner are likely having to, you know, pull all the strings in your business. What practices would you in your business like to modernize, like to streamline, like to make more effective? And how can tech help you do with do that? You know, there are effective partnerships. San Jose and Google, uh, you know, there are ways to work in safety measures that protect our business leaders and empower them to become uh, tech focused. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, this is an inevitability. And as someone who saw firsthand uh, the really uh, ugliness of gentrification, uh, I was able to learn ways to curb it. And a lot of that was through going directly to these mom and pop shops and saying, we're anticipating this partnership, but before we even get to that, how can we help you? And how can we have you help serve in advising these partnerships. Would that be an effective way to like keep gentrification from happening? Because I think that that's a, a real fear that that may happen Definitely. over here. And one of the questions that um, Osvaldo and I have been bouncing back and forth is that there's a train that the plans to to create this train that is going to connect Salinas to mm -hmm. the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. You know, how is that going to uh, affect gentrification? How is that going to affect uh, local housing prices? How is that going to affect displacement people? And how what can we do to prevent that from happening? Or what can yeah what can be done? That's a great question. Yeah, I think the assumption is always right. The more tech, the more modern, the better. Right? Oh, okay. And uh, I think similar to what has been done with the police department, we can create, you know, a tech budgetary advisory committee that's made up of business owners, of tech leaders, of, you know, youth that come together and say, okay, we're going to be overseeing this partnership. We're going to be overseeing any kind of tech measure or policy and assuring that we build consensus. And that is the, the, the common thread between any kind of advisory committee is all you are doing is you are bringing community members into the fold of local government. And so that's the same way that we address this issue of gentrification, business and tech is creating these opportunities and spaces for increased community input and support. Our community residents have the solutions. I can think of very few cities that possess a populace more resilient than ours. And it's our job to put trust in them to help advise us. And let, let, I'm not going to jump in no, there again, like, ahead. sorry about this, but you just go said something it. about resilience that I think it's a very important because I think it's true. But at the same time, we have seen over and over again that sometimes money trumps anything else. And and Oz and I were mentioning a 
a project. There's a project that's going to be going up very quickly south of Salinas housing for farm workers, which is desperately needed. Mm -hmm. But why don't we have something like that for for homeless uh, residents? Or and and so it, you know, I guess one thing is because probably makes it makes more economic sense, but. You, you would also think that it makes more health-wise sense to not have people uh, walking on the streets. So yeah. can, how can we cre rely on resiliency when sometimes what seems to be more important is money? I mean, yeah. is there a solution for that? Or are we going to just be faced with the people who don't have money, don't need, que tiene menos saliva, traga menos pinole? Eso. Yeah. No, I think the the... A homeless person to these, you know, let's say not so nice developers or, or city leaders doesn't bring in profit, right? Someone that is homeless doesn't bring in profit. And so inherently you are tying the value of a human's being life to how much money they can bring to the community. And just the local homeless center, uh, homeless shelter, I cannot tell you how many Facebook comments, Twitter comments were horrendous people of this community saying, I don't want a homeless person here on my block. I don't want a homeless person next to my children. It is dehumanizing at the most core level. And so when we think about the, the, um, the resilience of our community members, it's a matter of, yes, not only relying on this resilience, but but honoring it and saying, we're going to take care of the most vulnerable in our community because by taking care of the most vulnerable in our community, the entire place is empowered and makes change. And you can only do that by really creating affordable housing and by supporting our homeless population, by creating further shelters. And I would say in addition to shelters, job training programs. These people are looking to, to you know, uh, I think what I'm addressing here is the narrative of a homeless person, right? They call them bums. They call them, you know, hobos. They're, oh, well, they're of no use. I can guarantee you that the average homeless person wants a job, wants a place to live, and is willing to work to make that happen. But if we don't empower them to do that through these kinds of programs, nothing will change. So uh, this is a little bit more fun questions, I guess. I don't know how fun any of this uh, it can be, but I, I'm, I'm always- We're fun. Yeah, you are I, fun. Policy's fun. 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 <laughs> but again, a, a part of this, in, these interviews is for people to really know or understand who their leaders are or who they might be. And so this is a more personal question. Okay. Um, that that kind of drives you is is what what do you think is a good leader? What you know what what anything you know what makes a good leader? I like that. Um, oh God, I'm gonna give the cheesiest response. I'm sorry, listeners. Uh, there's this story uh, that uh, I heard before of um, you know we think of wolf packs, alpha wolf wolves, wolves, alpha wolves, um, and um, there's this story in this picture that goes along, and I, I won't be able to uh, say it verbatim, but it shows different pictures of wolf packs that walk in this like triangular formation, and the alpha wolf was always in the back. And so there have been studies as to why this kind of trend happens, and it 
it is hypothesized because we'll never know hypothesized that the reason that these wolves stay in the back is to take care of the most vulnerable is to keep the back the pack going that to me is a leader not one who focuses on you know the 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 donors the fundraisers the you know the most powerful but someone who says how can we empower our most vulnerable and i believe that you do that by being rooted in this community by having an ear to this community and by really listening listening a leader is someone who listens a leader is not someone who counts themselves above the flock or ahead of the pack but someone that supports the pack in the most essential way well along the same lines of um fun question and um super fun fun questions is that um i want to ask you What books have influenced you? What are your favorite books? Maybe even your favorite writers, but let's talk about, let's talk literature a little bit. That is a fun question. Um, God, there's a, I am a bookworm. So uh, I, I, I read about five books a month. So, um, wow. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen when I, when, I purchased when, yeah. purchase five books. A you pur- <laughs> I purchased. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I salivate after five books a month. After five books a month. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, that's, that's a good one. Um, you know, there's three, there's three that come to mind. Uh, the first was the one that I read earliest on, uh, which is uh, Reign of Gold by Victor Villaseñor. So these three books, I guess now as I explain it to you, taught me three different things. Uh, Reign of Gold taught me the sacredness of our stories. Reign of Gold, um, for those of that are not familiar, is this uh, novella that tells the story of multiple generations of the Villasenor family uh, early dealing with the Mexican Revolution and their eventual immigration to the United States. Um, And it's something like 500 pages. But I remember reading that as a high school student and thinking, this is the most beautiful book that I've ever read. And I remember thinking, oh, these are the stories of my grandparents, of my uncles, of my aunts. And That's when I made that connection and was like, oh, 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 our stories are important. Our stories are sacred. Our stories need to be told. So that that taught me that, the sacredness of our stories. Um, the second I read in college, uh, and that is In the Time of the Butterflies uh, by Julia Alvarez, uh, which tells the story of three, the Miraval sisters who fought against the dictatorship of Rafael Leonidas Trujillo. Uh, And that taught me the power of women, the power of women and the power of uh, women's anger and and how to make something constructive out of that and how to really break the, 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 the bonds of civility and of passivity that is often expected of all women, but especially at the time, even more so Latin American women. Uh, the third uh, is prob- probably the most... Uh, Dense, uh, and that I read in graduate school. That's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, which which guides my teaching. And that's written by Paulo Freire. Uh, and one of, I think what that taught me uh, was how a teacher works in partnership with their student to create and construct knowledge. So I tell my students at the beginning of the year, every year, 
I am not the gatekeeper of knowledge. I am not an all-knowing being. I am the facilitator of knowledge. And I study just as much as you all to prepare our assignments, our lectures, our exams, everything. And that taught me really the power of an education that is liberatory, that is, uh, in, that is um, centered around civic education. You know, one of Paulo Freire's really common um, quotes is, read the word, read the world. And I can think of nothing more powerful to teach the youth. So yeah, those are those are the three books. You walk right into this one. What's the oh. what's the best and the worst of being a teacher? <gasps> That's a good one. Um, oh my God. The best you're gonna make me cry because I miss my students and <laughs> digital teaching is tough. Um the best thing about being a teacher is being a witness is being a witness. The best thing about being a teacher is being a witness. Uh, you know, you don't go into teaching for the pay. You don't go into teaching uh, to be thanked. It is one of those jobs uh, that is often very thankless. Uh, and you don't much see a return on your investment. I mean, unless you run into a student here or there. But uh, I think the best thing about being a teacher is uh, being a witness to the growth of your students, to the transformation of your students, uh, One of the most uh, proudest moments that I ever had as an educator is, um, to give you some background, is, uh, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was getting my master's in education uh, and my teaching credential at UC Santa Cruz. And I had long expressed interest in uh, teaching ethnic studies. Uh, and this was right when Dr. Ana Gutierrez was teaching the pilot course at Alsa High School, and it was a summer course. And she reached out to me and, and she was my former uh, English teacher. She taught me my seventh grade, my 10th grade year, excuse me. And um, she said, hey, I know that you're interested in this and, you know, you're getting your credential. Why don't you come to these meetings and, and, and build curriculum with us? Uh, and as a, not even a teacher, to build curriculum was, I mean, talk about a great opportunity. Uh, and so serving on that committee and on that board with the with the district really made me feel empowered. And I remember years later, uh, I was putting on a conference on ethnic studies with the Salinas Valley Ethnic Studies Collective. And I happened to mention it, mention it to a student of mine, uh, Daisy. And she said, can I present at the conference? I said, what? She goes, yeah, I want to talk about what you do in your class and what I do. She worked with um, BHC and uh, Cosecha. She worked with Cosecha. She says, yeah, I want to talk to them about it. And of course, I nearly wept and said yes. And she roped in her friend. And the proudest moment of my teaching career was sitting at this table at this conference. We put it on it at the Alsal campus of Hartnell, sitting at the table To the right of me, Dr. Gutierrez, and on stage, Daisy. And seeing the uh, cycle of that gave me such peace and, and, and let me know that, oh, okay, exactly what you wanted to do, reciprocating, you did. So, so being a witness uh, is the best thing. The, the worst thing or the hardest thing... You know, funnily enough, I think is also being a witness. Yeah. Well, yeah. Also being a witness. Um, 
students, when you earn their trust, will tell you everything. They'll tell you everything. They'll tell you their life story. I remember uh, this experience that I had uh, when I was student teaching. I was a student teacher, and um, I have these these students who rowdy bunch, you know, uh, always the ones with the, the loud cackle and the jokes and whatnot. And and one day I had them come in for lunch for a tutorial. And one of them, a young boy, said, uh, "Ay, Miss G, con tanta lata que te damos, you probably hate us, huh?" I said, "Who told you that I hate you guys?" So well, yeah, I, you know we're always here after school and this and that. You probably hate us. I said, "I don't hate you guys." I said, I love you guys. So you think that I'd be here on my lunch? They said, really? Say, I said, say what? Tell us you love us. And I said, you need to hear that? And they said, uh, yeah, if you really love us, you would say it. And I said, I love you guys. And I remember that afternoon, I was talking with uh, my supervisor um, from Santa Cruz. And he said to me, do you know how hard it is for a teenage boy to ask that kind of question? Do you know how much trust they have to have in an adult to ask that? Do you know how much they probably needed to hear that? Ooh, and I was just, pff, I burst into tears. And um, so, yeah, I think in answering this question, the best part about teaching is being a witness. And the hardest part about teaching is being a witness. You know, hearing you talk about the way you were saying, I think that just being present is hard. Present. And and you're present when you, be, you, you become a witness when you're present. And that can take many shapes, right? It can be the, the role of a teacher or the role of a journalist or the role mm -hmm. of a community member who's just there and just being a witness is really, really challenging. And yeah. so that's, that's sacred work you're doing. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Lucky yeah. to do it. Yeah. So. Well, right. Yeah. That, that got us, you know, we went down our list. I don't know if anything has come up. I mean, I came up with some, New ones on the flies. Yeah, Sorry. what you Sorry. got? No, no, I'm just saying. Just, no, no, you answered them already. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, you answered them already. Again, I, it's, it's Selena's. I could sit here and talk for hours about, you know, what's going on right. here. But um, people don't want to listen to that. <laughs> well, we, we, we kept you for an hour and we're trying to be disciplined and, and, yes, and keep yeah. this yeah. for about an hour. And I think if we ended here in the in these reflections of being part of this community and being a witness to its beautiful aspects and its painful aspects is just probably one of the greatest gifts we can give to to our neighbors our community members and ourselves so Eso. i would like to end there yeah it feels yeah. like a, a natural ending point and so yeah so you're free so awesome it wasn't that bad it was not <laughs> thank you for having me and then thank you for for yes for doing this project um it it really I think provides a more intimate setting, but also provides a more personal setting. People need to know who they're voting for. It's more than the little name on the ballot and the little statement in the in the um, voter guide. So, so yes, thank you for doing this, and especially on a Sunday. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. The, well, from my side, thank you to again again to Voices of Monterey Bay for doing this 
You bring you bring the professionalism in here. Hey, thanks for Selena's <laughs> underground. You bring the spunk and the yeah. youth. So hey, yes. we make a good team. Yeah. Anyway, well, we'll see you guys in a couple of days. Yes. Thank there's you. A, there's a lot more coming. See y'all. <laughs>